Now we're going to turn to Psalm 89 um, before we have communion. It's the second longest uh, psalm. It is, it's kind of, you know, you get really short songs and then you get Bohemian Rhapsody or you get Wagner's Ring. Well, this is the Bohemian Rhapsody of, of uh, the psalms. And I think when you read it through, it's described as by Ethan the Ezraite. I think when you read it through, there are individual verses that stick out, but the whole theme uh, doesn't immediately strike us as, as obvious to us. And yet when I was looking at this week, I just thought, wow, it's just, it's just something else. Because what this psalm does, and to understand it, it's kind of pieced together, possibly around 400 years after uh, David has, has died. And uh, you'll see why that is. It's, it's in three large sections, and it deals with uh, a question that we can often have, we, we will often have. It's a poem of 104 lines. The last verse in it is really a verse that's for the whole of the third book of Psalms. The Psalms is split into five books, five song books, and this is the end of, of the third one. But here's the question. What do you do when something you've been promised just does not work? So this uh, week, for example, uh, you've been following all the stuff about the, the ISIS bride, the girl who went from London, and she's basically uh, saying things like, I thought it would be paradise. It wasn't. It wasn't what they promised. Or maybe this has happened as well you, you've been told you've read in all the magazines Mills and Boons have told you that getting married is the answer to absolutely everything and you get married and to be honest it's a wee bit of a disappointment for some people it's not everything that you were promised or you were headhunted for a new job you were told come to Dundee it's the sunniest city in Scotland and you were told that this is the most important work that could be possibly done on planet Earth. And you come, and it's just not exactly what you've been promised. Or there may be the promises of God, what we consider to be the promises of God. And I think one of the most devastating for anybody, Lord, you promised you'd look after me. Lord, you promised that you'd care for me. Why do I have cancer? And it seems like a broken promise. So this song is amazing because on, in, in verses 1 to 14, it talks about the God of wonders, and we'll look at that. But in verses 38 to 51, it's a complete reversal. So 1 to 14, it's these are the promises of God, and then the end of the psalm is they've all failed. So let's look at this. So let's go. Now, there are um, 16 verses, two half of a verse. Sorry, the 15 verses, two half verses. So that, that's 17. So we will have to, you'll understand if we don't go into depth in every single verse, because each verse is about eight lines as well. So let's just begin with verses one to four. And again, I won't read this, but if you uh, have time and you want to read Second Samuel chapter seven, this is this song is taken from that, this first part. 
Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. Oh, sorry, wrong one. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. This is God speaking to David at the beginning of his reign and it's the promise of an everlasting kingdom. It's the Lord's covenant love and faithfulness. Now as we go through each verse, we're going to apply these in the context of Christ and in the context of ourselves. When you become a Christian you come to know God's covenant love and faithfulness. And it's a fantastic and tremendous promise. Your love stand firm forever. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. It doesn't change. It isn't moved. It doesn't lessen. God's love is forever. God's covenant faithfulness. God is faithful. God will not betray his people. So the first verse is on a very optimistic note and a right note. Then verses 5 to 8. This is the second stanza. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. The angels worship. There is a spiritual kingdom which we see but dimly. There is a higher throne, and we don't see that. Sometimes you and I, what we just see in our lives are the authorities and the powers around us. We don't see the higher throne. Sometimes we just see what we ourselves experience. And we we don't experience that there is a whole spiritual realm that really is beyond our understanding. And the psalmist is saying, you are the covenant God. You are the God who shows his love and faithfulness. But you are the God also of the angels. You are the God for whom for tens of thousands of holy ones, as the angels, bow down and worship Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? He is more awesome than all who surround him. I think if you or I saw an angel in their glory, we would be overwhelmed. And here the psalmist is saying, oh, that no, no, this this is so, God is so much greater. So verses 9 to 12 You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crush Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scatter your enemies. The heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon, sing for joy at your name. We can't see the spiritual kingdom, but we can see the greatness of God in his creation. We've been seeing that in Romans chapter 1. Where God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, says Paul, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So we see the beauty in creation, we see the power in creation, we see the glory in creation, and it does not come just from the creation, it comes from the creator. 
So we have uh, an image or a picture of God in terms of his works. God is sovereign in nature as well as in supernature. And I think about that as well in terms of our own context and our own culture. Because people are rightly concerned about climate change and, uh, and, and what's happening and everything. But I think we wrongly assume that we can control it and that we can dominate nature. No, we can't. We can't. But neither is it random. Uh, maybe, maybe this is the wrong way of, of thinking, but to me it's a logical way of thinking. If I didn't believe in a sovereign God and I was being rational, I would think, do you know this? Never mind all these apocalyptic movies. Uh, the world could be wiped out in an instant by an asteroid hitting it. Or lots of things could happen that just seem to be completely random. But the psalmist tells us, we see the greatness of God in his creation, and it's not random. Rahab, you see, that's interesting. Rahab was the mythological monster in Egypt. And it was the monster of chaos. See, virtually every culture in the world... Every ancient culture believed that the universe was chaos. But Judaism, Christianity came along and taught that the universe isn't chaos. That, by the way, is how we get science. We've only had science because of the teaching of the Bible telling us the universe isn't chaos, that we can study it and that we can examine it. But the reason it's not chaos is because it's in God that we live and move and have our being. And the reason that the psalmist used the image of the surging sea here and uh, again, it's an image that's used throughout the Old Testament especially, is that the sea portrays what only God can tame. You can't tame the sea. You can't control the sea. The sea portrays what only God can tame. So he's the God of wonders. He's the God who promises his love and faithfulness to David. He's the God whom the angels worship. He's the God who's seen in creation. And verses 13 and 14, your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. He is the God of covenant love and faithfulness and righteousness who will keep all his promises. So that's the first verse or the first section rather. Of um, it's uh, three and a half, eight line stanzas, really. And it's just, it, it's teaching these wonderful things about God. And then verses 15 to 37 go on to talk about his promises. And there are six verses there verses 15 to 18. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness, for you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. So there's this great God who has a people, and his people are joyful. They experience righteousness and justice and walking in the light of God's presence. They are defended by God who is their glory and who is their shield. The hymn writer taking these words, they rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness. Ended up writing the hymn, we have heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves. 
It's a joyful sound. Coming to know God, being part of his people. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Verses 19 to 21, once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I've bestowed strength on a warrior. I've raised up a young man from among the people. I found David my servant. With my sacred oil, I've anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. God's people were brought into a kingdom. The king was David, but David is the servant of God. And there's a promise that that kingship will last forever. He is the servant king. Spoken of also in Isaiah and elsewhere, but ultimately fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate servant king. He's the ultimate king. He is the son of God, but he's the ultimate servant who the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so there's this kingdom of, of, of joy and of righteousness and of justice. There's the servant king who, who leads it, ultimately, Jesus Christ. Verses 22 to 25. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him. And through his name, my horn will be exalted. his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea his right hand over the rivers. Here's the king who wins, the king who defeats evil, the king who stops the attacks upon his people, the one who enables us to deal with the chaos and the turmoil. Verse 26 to 29, he will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior, and I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever, and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. And this is back to, to verse 1. It's back to the covenant. It's back to God promising to keep this. It's not that God sets up a kingdom and then says, well, let's see how this one works. And if it doesn't work, we'll do something else. Revelation 1.5 cites this from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. God is our father, our rock, our savior. This covenant will never ever fail. Which is why the next verse warns us about breaking it. Verse 30 to 33 if his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. There's a warning of breaking the covenant. Why? Because the promise between God and his people doesn't mean that God's people suddenly become sinless. And we are prone to wander. As we often sing, we turn away. We break God's covenant. And God doesn't say, I'll ignore that. He says, I'll deal with that, but I'll never let them go. Being in the covenant doesn't mean that we are sinless, we struggle, but it does mean that God does not let us go. And that's why in verses 34 onwards, the next stanza, he says, I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. 
Once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. Again, echoing echoing 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. So it's a fantastic, there's a, there's a fantastic God and a fantastic promise and a fantastic salvation and a guarantee it's everlasting. And then, if only the psalm had stopped there, but it doesn't. Because verse 38 onwards shows us the God of contradictions. Now, I don't think it shows us a God who contradicts himself, but from our perspective, it looks as though God's promises have failed. So let's read from verse 38 to 41. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you've been very angry with your anointed one. You see what he's just saying? He's saying, you said God, you'll never reject, but you have rejected. You've renounced the covenant with your servant, despite the fact you said you wouldn't. And you've defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. See that but in verse 38. Every Christian of any experience knows that but. God promised this but. God said this but. And if you don't know that, you're blind. You're a very, very young Christian, or you're not facing up to reality, and you're not facing up to the reality of God, and you're not facing up to the reality of your own situation. But I am so thankful for the buts, if you like, that are in Scripture, and this one especially. I'm very thankful for it, because the experience of the believer who struggles with, but God, pro- God promised this but... That's reflected and echoed in this psalm so that it means that we're not alone. Now what's going on here? This is jumping forward to Zedekiah. And an 18-year-old boy, king, who's taken into exile, who's mocked. And who the last time we hear about him, 37 years later, is still in exile. And Jerusalem is destroyed. The Babylonians have come and they've destroyed it. God had promised Jerusalem would not be destroyed. God had promised the kingdom would be forever. And so the psalmist comes and on the basis of the previous promises seems to be making accusations to God. You, 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 you. Eight times. You made these promises. And it's almost as though they are false. Verse 42 You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword and you've not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. The enemy's right hand is exalted, not God's. And Zedekiah is covered in shameful garments by the king of Babylon. Israel is destroyed. The kingship that was going to last forever is gone. 
The city that was the city of God, Jerusalem, is being destroyed. It's no wonder that the psalmist struggles with that. Those of you who've experienced personal betrayal, my best friend with whom I ate bread has betrayed me. But that's the betrayal of adultery in a marriage as well, isn't it? To be faced with that. To be let down. To be wounded. To be hurt. Um, We watched a pretty dreadful film last night. Dreadful in the sense of the film itself was fine, but what it portrayed was was called True Stories. And uh, it's about a guy who murdered his wife and his three children. And you know this, such a brilliant liar, absolutely brilliant liar, and how he manipulated a journalist. And here's the sad thing, there's kind of part of you which wants to say, that's so horrific, I could never understand how anyone would be able to lie like that, but actually you can, because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And when it it just... It's just incredible that a human being could do that. Incredible that human beings can lie in such a way. And the psalmist is looking at this and he's saying, Lord, we're seeking to be your people. We've been following you. And then this happens. You promised this. You promised this. You promised this. And then this happened. In another psalm, Psalm 73, the psalmist was so overwhelmed by his questions about the justice of God that he he said, I I couldn't say a word to to people in the church. I couldn't say anything because I, I, I would have betrayed you. And those questions sometimes people wrestle with. So for example, we we go to the next stanza, verse 46. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all humanity. Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? See, he starts with, Ever, I will sing of your love forever, everlasting love. And he's, and he's now saying, where's it gone? Hasn't lasted all that long. Where's it gone? Are we ever to see the promises made good? Where's the faithfulness? Where's the covenant love? And, he, and, and it, go, it goes even deeper and you can feel the anguish here because he says, remember how fleeting my life is. My life's just like this. It's just, it's so tiny in the world, so tiny in the space of time. Remember how fleeting it is. So why am I having all this trouble? Why am I having all this difficulty? I understand a little pain. But what happened to that now I am happy all the day stuff? And it's futile. How futile you have created all humanity. The futility of humanity. And for a believer to feel that, for a Christian to think that, to think this is all futile. It's so overwhelming. And then verses 50 and 51 are even worse. Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. So Zedekiah is in exile in Babylon. The Jewish people are being destroyed. And all the nations around saying, ha, these Jews, we told you. It's funny, it's always been the same, hasn't it, for the Jewish people. 
mocked and abused, mocked and abused, mocked and abused. And God's people are mocked. They have mocked every step of your anointed one. I like what Matthias says. He says this, we can easily identify with these two prayers as the world scornfully dismisses the church of our Lord Jesus Christ and mocks his name. And we, for our part, long for revival and the honoring of the name above every name. The church was mocked before social media made it easier. But we're still mocked today. We're mocked in so many different ways. I'll give you just two examples. Uh, recently, in our culture. Uh, it's been stopped for the moment, but there is a, um, a Marvel-type comic book on Jesus, uh, which has Jesus as a superhero who gets things wrong and so on. And it's mocking, and it's blasphemous, and all the rest of it. And of course, you, there's a cowardice in that as well, because they wouldn't dare do that with Mohammed. And nor should they, by the way. But they wouldn't. But Jesus is fair game. And the church is fair game. And people mock continually. And you see it in so many ways within our culture. It's not a, you know, it's not a new thing either. When I first became a Christian, which was a few years ago in the 1970s, what was Scripture Union called in our school? The Holy Joes, the Bible bashers, and the ones who deserve to be bashed. You know, it, that's just the way of it. That's the way it is. But these people mock. And they, and they seem to be getting away with it. Maybe this one's a wee bit more hard to understand, a wee bit more controversial. But there's the uh, rainbow flag flying over the steeple church at the moment. And it's, it's owned by the council. It's, but it's, what's wrong with that? Well, the rainbow is a great thing. Uh, solas, that's our symbol because it's a symbol that God gave us but the rainbow, the rainbow flag has been come to be associated with LGBT now and again please be very careful about what you hear here the, the gospel is for LGBT people as well it's not about the people but it's the ideology there's an ideology that's come into our culture that is entirely dominant which teaches against what the Bible says about humanity teaches against what Jesus says it has become, it's, it's come into the church in so many different ways. And what the flag is doing, the flag is just simply mocking. It's simply saying, this is, the domin- this is the domination. And we're being mocked and dared to challenge. And many Christians do feel in despair. We, had a, we have a, a lovely group that meets on a Wednesday if you want to come at, at lunchtime through in the hall just looking at Bible study and one of the things we were looking at one time was what makes you afraid and someone said that, that they feared because of the way that the world is going and the mockery of the church and everything else and yeah, I understand that. I understand that because that's what's going on here. Lord, they have mocked every step of your anointed one. So, what is the answer? Let's go to the last verse, verse 52. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. It's a summary verse of the whole book, but it does deliberately come at the end of this particular song. How do you get from, God is wonderful, God has made these promises and the promises have failed. How do you get that? How how do you get to, 
praise be to the Lord forever. Is this just someone saying, no, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to praise God? No, I don't think so. I think this is Isaiah 55. My word will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That God does keep his promises. And I think there's something here that will really help us. So bear with us for a minute because when I was thinking about this, I, I read it and it hurt my head for a while and then it kind of made sense to me. So I hope I can convey it makes sense. In Psalm 48, there's a Hebrew notion of how past and future work. And it's the complete reverse of how we think of things. Now let me explain this. In our culture, we edit history out. We make it like the present. So if you go and see Mary, Queen of Scots, for example, that film, uh, don't, by the way, well, I'll save you money, uh, and just recommend that you don't go and see it because it's absolute rubbish. But Mary, Queen of Scots has like Mary like a woke feminist and, and Elizabeth as well, the sisterhood fighting against the patriarchy, mainly John Knox, uh, you know, and a few evil evangelical men with beards. Men with beards can't be trusted. That's, that's uh, you know, the kind of story. And, and it's just, it takes every... 21st century obsession and takes it back into the uh, 16th century. And that's what we do with history. We just change history. Or maybe another thing is if you watch Call the Midwife. Well, the last Call the Midwife. Call the Midwife is a brilliant program. It's really, really well done. Guess what the last Call the Midwife program was about? Intersex. In the 1960s, 1950s. Hardly. But that's people reading back, changing history to make it suit the present. We edit history out and we're obsessed with the future with hopes and fears and plans and projections for the future. But in the Hebrew context, they do it the different way. The past is in front of us and the future is behind us. What does that mean? What's in front of us is what we see. What's behind us, we don't know. And for the Hebrews, and this, when you think about it, makes absolute sense. We don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen. Don't you say you're going to do this, going to do that in the future. We can't say what's going to happen in terms of climate change or politics or Brexit or a thousand and one things. If, if You know this, if our politicians and newscasters realized that, half the programs would be stopped because they're all speculating about what's going to happen in the future. And I will almost 100% guarantee you this, that of 100 predictions of the future, 99 of them will turn out to have been false, and the one that isn't will only be partially true. We don't know what the future is going to be, but the Hebrews said we can learn from the past. So in our society, which is progressive, we worry about the future or utopia, and we say things like, you're on the wrong side of history. Well, maybe people are looking to the wrong side of history. Maybe we need to think about what happened in the past, these things that actually happened, rather than worry about what might happen in the future. And so, when the psalmist says, praise be to the Lord forever, amen and amen, what's he saying? He's saying that God's working his plans out and he's saying that we need to learn from the blessings of David and Jerusalem and take a warning from Zedekiah and he's saying that 
from the perspective of time, we need to try and work things out in terms of God's time scale. So again, Alec Motier, in writing about this, says, in a word, the promises had not failed, but human understanding of God's time scale and of the complexity of his world rule was not sufficient to keep step with what he was doing. That's how you get this. From your perspective, when someone's ill, when that job doesn't work out, when you go through enormous pain and suffering, when all seems darkness around, that perspective is right, but very, very limited. You cannot limit God's promises to your perspective. It's the human understanding of God's time scale. I uh, was saying to David Ellis, I've been reading a book, Killing Fields, Living Fields, by Don Cormack about the church in Cambodia, Kampuchea. Really such an extraordinary book because of its, its honesty and its realism. So many times the tiny church in that country was battered and battered and battered and battered. And when the communists came to power, there were probably only about 300 And most of them ended up being killed. And you're saying, Lord, you build your church. Come on, you've got to be kidding. How is that possible? What is going on? But God was working his plans out. And over a period of of decades, many, many, many Kampuchians, Cambodians came to know the Lord Jesus. God thinks long term. We think short term. My friend and mentor in some ways, Gordon Wilson, when he first came into the church here. Let me just tell you, I think I've, well, I know I've mentioned this to other people before, but let me just tell you this. One time he said to me, David, he told me about politics, and for those of you who don't know, he had been leader of the SNP. And he he said, you know, he says, you've got such an important message in the church, far more important than politics. But you're so rubbish at getting it out. And here's the problem with the church. We always think short term. Always short term. And I thought he was right. And when you look at the Bible, you see how God does things long term. How seed is sown. How there's sometimes enormous gaps. Like between Malachi and John the Baptist. 400 years of prophetic silence. But that doesn't mean that God's not at work. And it doesn't mean that God's purposes are not being fulfilled. And it doesn't mean that God's promises are not happening. Matthias goes on to say this. For us, the promises never fail. Though seeming delay makes some lapse into doubt, as Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3.4. And it's not just the great promise of his coming. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. The promises cannot fail, though our expectations may at any moment be blighted. At such a time like the psalmist, we must turn the promises into song and the disappointments into prayer. God's, the absolute is, God's promises do not fail. I was thinking about people being in hospital and so on, and I mentioned that Michael Green, the evangelist, died. For those of you who know Michael Green, just a a tremendous character. And I was reading a, a testimony to him from someone who's a nurse 
and said, you know, he's in hospital, he's seriously ill, he's basically dying. And they had to keep telling him to go back to bed, to stop handing out his books to patients and nurses and doctors. He was utterly irrepressible. Why? Because he had a greater hope. It's funny. The, uh, I just love this when Lindsey Brown was phoned, he was here, he was on mission, and Michael phoned him and said, I'm going home today or tomorrow. That's it. Don't mourn for me. Preach at my funeral. Preach the gospel. My time's done. It's a great witness. It's a great hope. God's promises had not failed. Our brother Owen up in Nine Wells phoned him this week and just, you know, we do pray for Owen. Love Owen and love the way that God has worked in his life. Just witnessing to a, a Muslim chaplain. I just thought, that's my boy from Charleston. You know, great. Just what he heard about the gospel. Just telling him about Jesus. Because Christ's promises are always yes. They don't fail. Because you see the question here, how long, O Lord? That's repeated in Revelation. How long will this go on? How fleeting is my life? Why have I been disappointed in this? Why this? Why this? Why this? And it's not wrong to ask those questions, but you have to listen to the answer. Because the answer comes from Jesus or from God the Father, simply this. This is my answer, Jesus. He is the answer. He is the answer. Look at Jesus and you'll see the answer to it all. So what we do when we take communion, we look back to the cross and we remember his death. And because of his death, we also remember his resurrection. And because of his death and resurrection, we know that everyone who falls asleep in Jesus lives forever completely forgiven, completely renewed, with no illness and no possibility of sin ever harming them again. We look back to the cross, we remember his death until he comes. The Lord is going to return. All this talk of the, of the line of David that will last forever, that wasn't meant as an earthly kingdom. It was about King Jesus. And it was about the new heavens and the new earth. And the promises of God have never failed. I doubt the church ever got so low as it did during the time of Zedekiah. And yet look what came out of that. And God continues to work and God continues to bless. And that's why he says, praise be to the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because God doesn't lie and all God's promises are true. And though our experience of them at times may cause us to question and at times may be very, very limited. Nonetheless, that's our experience which is limited. We need to look beyond that and we need to look to Jesus. And I think that Hebrew perspective on time is so important. We live in a world where everyone's looking to the future and is worried. We're looking backwards. And we're saying, this is what God did. This is what Jesus did. Are we worried about the future? No, not at all, not at all. We remember the Lord's death until he comes. We know he's coming. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. We know that. So no, we're not worried. We're not bowed down with 
how am I going to change the future? How am I going to change the world? I'm not going to change the world. It's Christ's world. And what he's going to do is going to be beyond anything that I could ever conceive or imagine. And please take that in terms of your own life as well. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. He is good and he does what is good. And his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. You know where that comes from, of course. Lamentations. Most miserable book in the whole Bible. In one sense. And yet in another sense. In the midst of lamenting. Jerusalem being destroyed and the kingdom being taken away and the promises seeming having to fail. The prophet tells us God's mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for its searing honesty. Thank you for the the psalmist who wrote this. The ones who took the, the wonders of you being the greater than all the angels combined and greater than the creation and ruler of the creation. The one who is the covenant keeping and promising and making God. The one whose love and faithfulness never leaves nor fails us and yet also, oh Lord, thank you for the honesty of the psalmist in in looking around and not seeing your promises being fulfilled and crying out why. Why, oh Lord, how long? Why is my life so meaningless? Why is it so futile? And thank you that the answer to those questions is seen in Jesus. And thank you, O Lord, for that for each one of us here, whatever we experience at this time, that everything is like a drop in the bucket compared to your great and overwhelming plan that all things work for the good of those who love you. We praise you, our God, and we bless you. Help us as we reflect upon this more as we sit at your table. In your name, amen.